And then, before I go out into the world, and I try to avoid it as often as possible, but before I go out into the world, I do loving kindness. May I be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to me. May no difficulties come to me. May no problems come to me. May I always find fulfillment. May I also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. Now, you can add people. May my parents, my grandparents, my children, you can do that. May my cats, my dogs, my fish, and my birds, you can do that. You can also add all the people that you don't know and all the people that you don't like. May they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. Now, that's for advanced meditators. Because <laughs> it's hard to wish the people you don't like to be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. You want them to be miserable and suffering more, you know. Okay, so now we come to the two kinds of Buddhist meditation. Samatha meditation and vipassana meditation. Samatha meditation is tranquility meditation, which has been going on forever. The Hindus did it. Probably people before the Hindus did it. If you're a human and you're able to concentrate, and that's one of the things humans have the ability to do over, say, a cat or a dog. Though the cat can be concentrated incredibly for three or four minutes on that bird that's fluttering. But it soon goes away. So I'm going to talk about the concentration part first. So this is what the Buddha did before he was the Buddha. The, as Siddhartha Gautama, he left the palace, left his wife, left his firstborn. He wasn't a deadbeat dad. Don't get the wrong idea. He said to his wife, I'll be back when I find the answer to suffering, and I'll share it with you. Okay, so he left. Now, his wife and child stayed at the palace. They had the king, the queen. They had servants. They had food. They had clothing. They had everything they needed. It was okay. But now Siddhartha goes out, and he's like this guy who just sort of a renunciate. You know, he didn't have anything. He had, you know, used clothing, and he didn't eat very much. And, but he started to meditate. He started to do samatha meditation, tranquility meditation. And he went into deep states of trance, if you will. And trance might be the wrong word, but he went into deep states of concentration and choiceless awareness. I love that word, or those two words, choiceless awareness. He went to a place where he no longer participated in his experience of life. He was simply the observer, detached. Okay. So... What do we do in order to practice samatha meditation? Well, one of the t ways we can do it is become aware of our breath. The sensation of breath going out, coming in, going out, coming in. You stay focused. Tip of your nose. Feel the cool air, especially in the early morning now. Coming in, going out, coming in, going out. If you have a problem <clears throat> following the breath, you can count one to ten. 
10 to 1. 1 to 10, 10 to 1. And do it for 20 minutes. And if you can't do it for 20 minutes, do it for 10 minutes. You, what you're doing is you're exercising your concentration power. You're just being one-pointed in the present moment. At that moment, there's no future and there's no past. There's just a sensation of breath. And the cool thing about sensation is it's happening right now. That's your portal. That's your doorway into the present moment experience of your life. The sensation. Going in and coming out. Going in and coming out. You know, if you have a sore foot or a bad hand, that sensation brings you to the present moment as well, but not in a happy way. You say, ah, this darn present moment, this isn't a good one. I don't want this anymore. I'm going to the doctor. Doctor, can you change the pain? I'm tired of being in this present moment. But the sensation of breath is your friend. Breathing. Something we do every day, all day, and give no thought at all to it. It all happens by itself until you're drowning. And then you go, well, I can't breathe anymore. I'll be dead in five minutes. Until then, we just take it for granted that we're going to always be able to take the next breath. Five characteristics in the first level of concentration. Applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, equanimity. Those five characteristics arise as you go into deep states of concentration. Okay? Second level of concentration. We get rid of two of them. Applied thought and sustained thought we no longer need because now our mind simply rests on the sensation of breath. Now we have pleasure, happiness, and equanimity. Okay. Now what's cool about this, if you think about it, Buddhism is a path of renunciation. In order to go forward, we have to give stuff up. It sounds sort of depressing. In order to go forward, we have to give stuff up. But we're giving up stuff that prevents us from realizing our perfection. We already have everything we need. We're already perfect as a human being. But we have a few roadblocks to realizing, to awakening to it. Okay. And three of them, obviously, are greed, hatred, and delusion. Because anybody that has those is not a perfect human being. But underneath the greed, hatred, and delusion lies our perfection. So our job is to get rid of stuff as we progress along the Buddhist path and in meditation, we get rid of applied thought and sustained thought, and now we have happiness, bliss, or pleasure, and equanimity. And to go deeper now, we have to give something up. So what are you going to give up? Are you going to give up happiness? Are you going to give up bliss and pleasure? Are you going to give up equanimity? Because you have to give one of those up to go to the next level of concentration. And you know what? We can't give them up because we don't have much to do with them. They just sort of happen. Pleasure just sort of happens. You get the right circumstances around you, 
pleasure arises. Oh, okay. You get the wrong circumstances around you, pain arises. Oh. And we try to prevent pain as best we can. That's why ibuprofen is sold over the counter. But ultimately, we can't really prevent the pain or encourage the pleasure unless we descend, decide to go to Disneyland for $125 for the day where everybody's happy. But then you have to leave. I don't want to go. This is the happiest place on earth. I'm really happy. I'm sorry, you have to go. We need to clean up for the next happy day. Okay, okay. So in our meditation practice, what we give up is our attachment to pleasure and our aversion to pain. Our attachment and our aversion, those psychological states, okay? So what is pain? What is pain? Pain is a really strong sensation, basically, and it gets your attention. And it's saying to you, you'll be dead soon if you don't do something about it. You've got to move that leg. That pain is coming from your leg and you have to move it or you will never walk again and they're going to have to call the paramedics and take you to the hospital because you were meditating. No. No. I don't want to be a meditator. I don't know. But it's a really strong sensation. So can you have acceptance of that really strong sensation until the gong is rung? And you go, okay, maybe. Maybe I can do it. You know, I can do it another five minutes. You know, what happened to the monk? Did he fall asleep? Why isn't, I, isn't he ringing the gong? Doesn't he know our legs hurt? Our back is uncomfortable? Our feet, we can't feel them anymore? Why doesn't he ring the bell? Well, okay, I can do another five minutes. I can do another five minutes. That's how my meditation started. Okay, now we've got to give up something else to get to the next level. We only have two things left. Happiness and equanimity. Oh, man, which one should I give up? I guess I'm going to have to give up my attachment to happiness and my aversion to sadness to get to the next level. Okay, okay. I, gosh, I like happiness, so I don't want to have to give up my attachment. You can still be happy. It comes and goes. You've got nothing to do with it. It comes and goes. The problem is, is when you attach to it and don't want it to go. You have to let it go. I don't know. I don't want to let happiness go. No, you've got to let it go to get to the next level. If you're a meditator. Okay, okay. So I understand now. It's the attachment. It's not the happiness. It's not the pleasure. It's the attachment. And you're attaching to it because you don't want it to go. But if you let it go, you have other opportunities to experience your life in a much more enlightened way. Okay, I got it. So now I've got one thing left. Equanimity. Perfect balance of mind. 
ultimate acceptance of the way things are. Wow. When you get to that place, you don't suffer. You don't suffer. Suffering happens when you want things to be different than they are. Suffering happens when stuff changes and you don't want it to change. Suffering happens when you think you're supposed to have a good hair day and it didn't work out that way. Oh, man. That's what I said this morning when I looked in the mirror. What happened to my good hair day? And then I thought to myself, what happened to my good hair? I don't know. So there we go. We went through all these different levels of concentration. We got deeper and deeper and deeper. And now we come to a place of equanimity, perfect balance of mind, choiceless awareness. You have no preferences. You don't criticize or critique anything you become aware of. It simply arises, manifests momentarily, and falls away. And it arises manifests, falls away. And you start to think of yourself as something that just arises, manifests, and falls away. You're that too. That's how your consciousness works. But we add something to that arising, manifesting, and falling away, and we add the story of our life. We have the beginning, we have the middle, and we have the end. And we go, wow, that's my life. That's the story of my life. But what is your life? Is it breathing? Is it thinking? Is it seeing? Is it hearing? Is it smelling? Is it tasting? Is it touching? That's the basis of your life. And all that information is taken by the self, the ego, the person you think you are, and it creates the story. And we all have good stories. Sometimes they're bad stories, but we all have stories. Wow, okay, now I've seen the story maker. I've seen how it began. I've seen that I can simply allow it to be without having to do anything about it. Without having to change it, or wish it was different, or wish I was different, or wish the circumstances were different. There's just this amount of acceptance that you've never felt in your life and that's the calm and the peace that comes with the Buddhist practice. We're not trying to be happy. I know everybody wants to be happy. Will Buddhism make me happy? No, it won't. It'll make you peaceful. It'll make you calm. It'll give you an, a level of acceptance that you've never had before. But how about all those people that are out there and they're starving? I can't accept that. I can't do anything, not do anything for them. Buddhism doesn't say you're supposed to accept them as well. Buddhism says if you see someone suffering, help them. Help them. We have two people, two men. One man is fasting for 10 days. Everybody's... Wow, he's fasting for 10 days. Another man is starving for 10 days. Wow, he's starving. That can't be. Both men are doing the same thing. Which one would the Buddhist help? The one that's starving. We'd encourage the one that's fasting to maybe go 11 days. 
because you'll find out a lot about yourself if you fast for 11 days. And you'll find out a lot about hunger and attachment to food and how good it smells, when, especially when you're hungry. Whoa. And those chocolate chip cookies. Oh, man. Warm out of the oven. Oh, yeah. Those are the thoughts and fantasies that come to you as you're starving. But when you're fasting, you're strong. I don't need it. It's going to make me a better person. I'll understand something about myself I didn't understand before. So we don't turn our back on the world and say, it doesn't matter anymore. We come to a place of interconnectedness that we understand for the first time that we are all in this together. None of us stand apart. So if one person is hungry, the collective is hungry. If one person is suffering, the collective is suffering. Okay. I liked it better when I was an individual. Oh, but you gave that up. Being an individual only takes you so far. You have to go beyond your individuality to get to the next place. That place of interconnection and interdependence. Even Thomas Merton spoke about that. That compassion comes out of the realization of your interconnectedness. It comes out of being connected to everything and everyone. So Buddha's been going that right on man and woman. But you're going to have to give up being a man and a woman and simply be a human being of service to others at some level in your spiritual path. When you're ready. This practice is all about getting us ready for that event. And in the Mahayana tradition, we call that the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is someone who says, I'm going to refrain or I'm going to wait on my own liberation, on my own nirvana, until all sentient beings are free from their suffering. And then I will accept my enlightenment. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine doing that? You know how long it's going to take until all sentient beings have ended their suffering? It will take forever. It's going to be forever. And yet somehow, in this deluded, compassionate, wise way you're looking at the world, you see this as a very important vow to make. I will vow to save all sentient beings. Whoa, man. What's wrong with you? There's a lotto for one billion dollars. Don't you want that? Well, I could save a lot of people with a billion dollars. Yeah, we could maybe save all the cats and dogs that are put to death every year with a billion dollars. Yeah, I could do good work. It would help. Okay. So there you go. But sometimes the good work is simply sitting down and listening to somebody tell you their story. Sometimes being a bodhisattva is just sharing your time. You don't have to give money or food. Just share your time. You know? And as we get older, we have less and less time. So it's more and more valuable and even makes a bigger impact on people when the old guy or the old gal sits down and says, yeah, tell me a story. And I'll tell you mine. And we'll share. 
because we're in this together. We're not separate. It's an illusion. So how did we get separate? Why are we so individualistic that we think it's all about us? All about us. Well, it's not our fault. That's how we were raised. Our parents needed us to have a separateness so we could survive in the world. So they taught us how to speak. And every time you're able to say a new word, you become separate again from the thing you're speaking about. If you have a vocabulary of 10,000 words, you are separate in 10,000 ways. Man, no way. Yes, way. Okay. Then they sent us to school so we could read and write and add and subtract. It becomes separate in so many new ways. Then, at one point, they said to us, you're going to have to go now. We've made you separate. You no longer are connected to us in the way that is useful for you or for us. You have to make your way into the world. So have a nice day. But you can come for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Come back and visit us. Ramdas said, So you think you're enlightened? Ramdas said, Go spend a week with your family. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> so now we're out, and now we have careers, and we have bosses, and we have taxes, and then we get lucky maybe and get a partner. Okay, great. So we're no longer alone. Now we have formed a new union. Okay. But then at some point, you know, it doesn't work out. And even if it does work out, at some point one of you has to die. And then you're sort of alone again. You know? And so Ramdas said, in the beginning we're in somebody training. We're training to be somebody. And in the end we're training to be nobody. And why is nobody important? Because nobody dies well. Ramdas, you're so wise, man. Who would make the best president? Nobody. Nobody is really a good place to be. Who has all the information? Nobody. Wow, where do I meet nobody? He sounds like somebody that would be interesting to talk to. Okay. You're the nobody. You evolve into nobody. You used to be somebody, but now you don't have to defend or define who you are anymore. And I tell you what, it happens anyway when you get old. That's been my experience. That I walk into the grocery store and they see the I'm the old guy and I'm nobody. Excuse me, I say in a Korean grocery store. Where's the bread? I'm looking for the bread. I can't find it. We don't have bread. You don't have bread? How do you make your sandwiches? Man. And then he just walked away. I'm like, okay. I'm nobody. Whether I want to be or not, whether I'm ready to accept the moniker of nobody. Who are you? I'm nobody. And I thought so. I could tell. Okay. 
So it's an interesting dilemma we find ourselves in, that we can never go back to being nobody because you can't unlearn everything you've learned or unknow everything you know. You have to go forward and you have to go into transcendence, the transcendence of who you used to be and who you are now. And that allows you so many new options in your life. Because we were pretty much stuck in being who we were. And we reacted and responded and we had habit patterns and we only bought these shoes and we liked our hair cut this way. And that's who we were. And if anything changed, we were really uncomfortable and sort of mad about it until we got those new shoes again and those made you who you are. And then at some point you're going to have to go, well, you know, I don't think those shoes are who I am anymore. And I don't think that jacket is who I am anymore. I think I, think I need to be, I think I'm, maybe I'm something else. And that's how we discover the nobody in us. Our journey is not over. We got a lot of stuff to do. Don't sleep in. You got to find nobody. Where does he or she live? What are the characteristics that he or she has? How can I come to a place of acceptance with being nobody, with nothing to define and nothing to defend? How can I do that? And one of the ways we can do that is through our meditation practice. It allows us a few moments of transcendence, that the ego becomes anesthetized, sort of falls asleep for a little while. And there we are in this other level of awareness and consciousness. And actually, it feels pretty good. You sort of hate to come back and have to go out the door and get in your car and go in the 405 freeway. You sort of hate to do that because you were in that place where everything was connected and everything was interdependent. And the universe was saying to you in those few moments of your meditation practice, welcome home. We've missed you. You've been out there being somebody. It's so nice to have you back again. You know, you go, oh man, yeah, that's sort of home. That's sort of home now, is this universe. But in order to go through that door, to be greeted by the universe, you have to be nobody. You have to let go of somebody. And meditation can help you do that. Now, I'm not going to go into insight meditation today because that's another really long talk. But I think what you've heard today could be important and, and could improve you in ways you didn't think needed improvement by simply resting into the present moment of your life, being calm and collected, peaceful, and instead of reacting to all the stuff in the world, responding to all the stuff in the world. Wanting answers, that falls away. There are no answers. There is no reason anything happens, ultimately, as you turn into nobody. And you come to a place of acceptance with the great mystery which is our life. Our life is the biggest mystery 
we ever have. And we don't know why or how or when. We just have this mystery. Can you sit in the mystery and be relaxed and calm? Not needing to know everything about everything, which really doesn't happen anyway, because by the time you learn about something, it's already different, because everything is in a state of constant flux and change, and now you have to learn it again, and that's what's wrong with computers, is they're updated far too often, and now you have to relearn the operating system, and just when you get it down, there's another, oh man, again? It's updating again? When am I finished learning and evolving? You never are. It's going to go on forever until you finally decide it's time to check out and start your next lifetime, if you're a Buddhist. I am going to stop there. <laughs>